Hi, everybody. Welcome to another Prog Report Top 5 episode. Hope everybody is safe and doing well out there uh, under this uh, coronavirus mess we're all dealing with. But we're going to try and bring you some good episodes and try and entertain while we can, uh, while everybody's at home and trying to keep busy. And, uh, you know, whatever conditions you're you're dealing with this under. Uh, today, we're going to do a, a one I'm surprised we haven't gotten to in a while. It seems like one we should have done, but it's Top 5 Prague debut albums and uh, around this time actually uh, actually I'd probably be just back as we're recording this I would have been back from Cruise to the Edge which is uh, and we probably would be recording the recap episode of Cruise to the Edge so the timing for this is actually unfortunately good I guess as it works out but um, I, uh, a special guest today is a, a good friend of mine and the, the man who lets me co-host with him on Cruise to the Edge every year. We've had him on before. He's a big Yes fan, uh, writes books, does all this stuff. He's a DJ. You all know him from other stuff we've done before. So let me welcome John Kirkman. Hello. How are hey, you doing? John. Good, man. Good to have you on here. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to do this, uh, see each other in person as we would have been doing the last few days. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I've spoken to a lot of people I wouldn't normally speak to on Skype and FaceTime and, and everything else. Normally, uh, I'd be literally down the road and seeing them or actually traveling to see them. And yeah. But they're strange times. And you know what? I, I think as a race of people, we kind of respond quite well to that. We find a way around it, don't we? That's right. We do. And, uh, and uh, we, of course, are going to bring on our uh, regular co-host here on the show, Jeff Bailey. Jeff, how are you, man? Hello, everyone. Does it sound better with the face mask or without the face mask? <laughs> I, th- I think I'm safe enough here on, on, yeah. on my own in front yeah, of the microphone. Can, without, yeah. is, without is going to work fine. Uh, cool. Anyway, so actually, this is uh, another uh, crossing of, of uh, you know opportunities here because John has a book coming out that he's going to tell us about that Jeff also uh, happens to be a contributor to. So why don't you guys talk a little about that, John? Talk about your book and, and what's going on and what people need to know. Okay, well, let, let me just go back a little bit in time. Originally, I had a book out called Time in the Word, the Yes Interviews, which came out again uh, as another limited edition in softback format and updated, and that was called Dialogue. And since then, we've been doing more dialogue books, which just has the interviews in Around about the time of dialogue, we thought about doing a, a photographic book, a limited edition photographic book, with some of the lesser seen photographs of yes, in concert, maybe off stage, whatever. And I came up with the title, so blame me. And I thought, okay, tales from photographic oceans rather than topographic <laughs> oceans. I mean, so, it seems to write itself, really. It does, really. And um, that was going to be about six years ago. But I had problems with the publisher when I was doing a subsequent book and it went legal. And once things once you go down that wormhole, it just everything just kind of stops. So we kind of uh, put it on the back burner. And then, then towards the end of last year, we decided, no, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do it myself. And we got a cover. In fact, we've got two covers designed, but and there's there's a possibility of a second volume because the first one's been 
actually um, accepted and taken to really well. So there may well be a second volume. And another reason for that is because we were inundated with so many photographs from so many different people. We just couldn't get everything in one volume. So there may be a second volume later this year. Originally, it was going to be called um, Into the Lens, but then we went for something else, uh, which, which was more in keeping with uh, topographic oceans. So that's it. Most of the photos in there are fan-led. Uh, as Jeff will tell you, he's a huge Yes fan. He's taken photos like most Yes fans have over the years. Uh, some of the earlier photos from the fans are absolutely incredible because back in the day, as you know, and more, probably more so now, bands do not like having photographs of themselves on the Internet. They like to have control of stuff. And I guess as an artist, that's understandable. So you had to sort of go via nefarious means to get your camera into a gig and then take a photo and kind of get the, snap the photo quick before the security saw you took your camera or your film away. Um, so there's lots of great photos in there and some great stories. We've got some fabulous pro shots in there. Uh, the first photo in there is uh, Peter Banks uh, in October 1969. And I, I sort of found that a few years ago, and I thought, we're going to use that. Because, as you know, most people think of Peter and Yes as playing the Rickenbacker, the white Rickenbacker with the Yes sticker on it. He's actually playing a blonde Telecaster. Now, I realize that's a little bit anoraki, but I never realized <laughs> that Peter Banks played a Telecaster. I'm sure he was more than capable of playing a Telecaster, but I remember the guitar that he had, sadly, when he, he, he passed away, and that was a customized um, I think a custom built guitar for him and of course when he was with Flash he played a Gibson 335 but uh, he's mostly known for playing the Rickenbacker so to see him with Yes with a, a Telecaster is like wow I'd never seen that before yeah. so it's a, it's a fabulous photo catches him in mid-flight jumping in the air with the Telecaster above his head and um, yeah we've got some nice photos of, of, of sort of people that, in Yes that have never actually um, obviously been seen widely if not at all i mean for instance we've got photos of rick's concert uh for return to the center of the earth he only did two concerts believe it or not for that particular album and uh the photos that we have from that show have never been seen before and the guy who took the photo also took photos of yes in 1980 in southampton because he currently lives in Hamilton, just outside Toronto, but he originally is from England, and he saw the band, and he saw John Anderson and all the guys from Yes at various shows. And the photo, the actual camera on the front of the cover of the book is his camera, and it reflects an image of Yes in 1980 in there. So there's a nice little connection there. Very cool. Yeah. So yeah. How did you, uh, Jeff? How'd you hook up? Uh, throwing some pictures in there. Well, I mean. John John had mentioned it, I think, on um, probably on his Facebook page that he was doing it, and obviously John and I have 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 chatted through here and through Messenger, and I sort of I sent it through, thinking I sent him a message saying, "Look, I've got some stuff," and he said, "Well, let's send it through." And my photos are from um, nineteen ninety four, um, which was the Full Circle tour when it was the kind of what people would call the sort of the this was one of the classic lineups, the kind of going for the one lineup. Um, mm with Alan White and Rick had got back together and they played in quite um, a venue in Dublin called Vicar Street, which is a, a venue that I've seen actually Steve Hackett and Dream Theatre in. The great thing about Vicar Street is it's 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 wider than it is deep. So actually everyone in the place isn't that far from the stage. And I had a camera, which was a pretty basic 
automatic camera but we were really close to the front and the photos turned out quite well one of the really funny things about those photos was when i started to work on them um obviously one of the things if you're using a a, a kind of automatic camera with a flash is that you get a lot of backs of people's heads as well so there's a couple of shots where you were cropping them out or you were darkening them down and years ago i posted one on facebook and a person commented on it go replied said that's that's my head which <laughs> 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 so i thought was pretty funny um yeah. but yeah but you know that 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 has you know that was a show where they did a wig and then chris had the triple neck bass and all that kind of stuff. So there's lots of lots of lots of stuff that turned out great. And then the other photos are from the um, the yes fiftieth anniversary show in the London Palladium, um, which would have been what two years ago. Um, and again, yeah. with when Trevor Horn um, came on stage and did um, Tempest Fujit, I think with them. And um, yeah, so some bits and pieces of shot. And again, of of people like Billy Sherwood and Jay Shellen and John Davison who who weren't in the lineup at the time of the first set. And I said anyway, I sent them through to John thinking I'm sure he's got lots of really great um people who have much better photos than me and um I was delighted that he picked some of them and I'm I've seen a preview of the book and what I would say is as a yes fan there's lots in here that's really interesting. I mean, I didn't I I I knew that there were some return um, to the center of the earth shows, but I actually, for some reason, I wasn't even sure whether Rick was part of them. Um, and I didn't actually realize John Anderson um, was part of them as well. Um, so that was quite exciting to find out things like that. Yeah, photos like the telly, Peter Banks with the Telecaster. Again, I'm a yes nerd. I've never seen that before. And there's lots of bits and pieces like that throughout. I love seeing photos of the drama lineup because, you know, the, there's there's not much... There's no live video of them, and there's a whole lot of really, really interesting, interesting things, and just and really good photos as well, actually as well. So I, I, I kind of enjoy that. So, it's a, it's um, I, I haven't seen it in the flesh, but I've seen it in electronic form, and would, would highly recommend it. And each, each um set of photos comes with a little bit of a, a write up by John about the era, possibly even about the show, mm-hmm. um, concert tickets. Uh, you know, posters, set just lists, all, all, yeah. set lists, yeah, it's all the, all the it sounds awesome. that goes with it, uh, so it's really good. Where does one uh, go about getting the book? You can go to my website, which is johnkirkman.co.uk, which is j-o-n-k-i-r-k-m-a-n.co.uk. Click on the menu, click on books, scroll down, and you'll see the cover, and you can order it there. And awesome. um, it's limited to just 300 copies worldwide, and we're doing really well with it, to be honest. And each one is signed and numbered by me. In fact, we did a, an update today, and I just picked one out of the pile, which just happened to be 007, which is quite <laughs> funny, really. Because I didn't realize James Bond was a fan. But then again, I can confirm that Sir Sean Connery and Jeff Downs share my birthday. So there's a nice little connection there, really. <laughs> well, there you go. That really is. <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> well, cool, man. Uh, that sounds awesome. And uh, you know what? It's it's rare that I, I we get on one of these podcasts and I'm, I feel completely intimidated by my knowledge compared to the two guests where <laughs> when it comes to yes, I, I there's no way I hold a candle to what you guys know about the band. So. Um, it's John's pretty, miles uh, ahead of me. Yeah, it's pretty amazing stuff. 
Um, let's go ahead and jump into the top five and try and, uh, you know, have a little fun here. Um, we were, you know, Jeff and I were talking about this as a topic and we weren't sure if, um, you know, to limit it in any way, like to, do we allow solo albums by guys, you know, like does Peter Gabriel count? Cause he was already in Genesis or do you mm. allow super groups? Cause there's a thousand super groups. Well, I, we decided, John, I didn't tell you any rules cause we frankly decided and anything goes, it, it doesn't matter. So sounds like my life <laughs> <laughs> right on. So, so with that being said, uh, it, it, basically it just has to be the first album of whatever it is, the group, or solo or super group or whatever. So mm -hmm. um, you could have all, uh, you know, all five Mike Portnoy bands. It could just be if you wanted. <laughs> and, okay. Uh, uh, so anyway, um, Jeff, why don't you kick us off with your number five and uh, we'll go from there. Okay. Um, I'm going to kick off. Uh, I, I don't have these necessarily in any kind of order, um, but um, I, the reason I'm starting with this one is because it uh, – in, in a new format, it popped through my letterbox just this week, and so I've spent the last couple of days going through it. Without further ado, the album is Marillion's script for a jester's tear. And oh, you mean um, the uh, the new the new reissue set is what you got the, the box the, set. The, the new yeah, reissue yeah. came in, um, and uh, yeah, with a with a live show with lovely fresh remixes and with a really great. Um, 90 minute documentary about the formation of the band and the history of it is re really good and Merlin have been doing a series of these um, kind of deluxe sets which is just stuff that I love but actually this album um, I think I probably told this story on here before but um, back in the days when um, I was younger and I didn't have a lot of money I uh, in the UK and Sunday uh, tea time there was the top 40 countdown and I used to sit with a cassette recorder with my finger on the pause button uh, waiting to record um, songs that I liked. And I can remember recording Garden Party, um, which was in the charts. And I remember um, hearing it and thinking it was something very unusual. It sounded a bit like the kind of the weirder stuff on Genesis Three Sides Live, which I think at that stage was the... Uh, was the, was, the, was the only Genesis album that I had, um, but the kind of the Moogie intro of Garden Party sounded a bit like that, but really liked the song. And um, I had a friend who was a major Marillion fan, and um, that's where I first heard this album, um, was through him. And I think um, in, terms of, in terms of the album itself, it, you know, it, it was something that was completely contrary to what was happening um, in the era. You know, it was the years of Duran Duran and kind of new romantic of synth bands. And this band came out and put out actually their, the, the EP that preceded it, you know, had an 18 minute track on, on the 12 inch version Grendel. Um, and, you know, they were doing something that was completely contrary in an era where I suppose the yeses and the ELPs had gone into um, sort of supergroup mode and were 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 on the charts with stuff like Heat of the Moment um, that, that that was proggy, but it wasn't quite um, like this. And you see the first flowerings of kind of Fish and his his lyrics and the 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 thing that again speaks of its era you know a, a, a hand-drawn 
album cover with a whole lot of lyrical references and clever things, things that actually point forward to songs that were on the next album. Um, and, you know, that whole package that we really loved in 70s, Prague and Marillion really um, brought it to life. And I just think it's it's an album that doesn't have a single bad track on it. Um, you know, and songs that got into the charts like Garden Party, He Knows You Know, um, a song about uh, a subject close to my heart in Northern Ireland, uh, Forgotten Sons. And um, yeah, it's just, I think it's just for an out of the blocks album, it's a, it's a really, really great one. I'm shocked, knowing the the fan you are of them, that it's at number five. But I guess you're you're no, saying it's it not, might not be in order necessarily. No, not not in order, not in order. All right, well, good. That's a good one. Uh, yeah, good timing as well with that reissue coming out. Um, okay, John, what's your number five? Um, well, I, again, they're not in any order, really, because I, I like them all. I mean, if you asked me to put them in order, my goodness, I'd be prevaricating forever. I'd, no, no, that's no. So I, these are not in any order. So I'm going to start off with the obvious one, which is the first album from Yes. Yeah. Um, I actually got into Yes in 1972. I was 13 going on 14, and I got into it, and, and Jeff will know about this. There was a TV program called The Old Grey Whistle Test. Sure. And... One week they had Yes live from the Rainbow as a, as a, the whole of the program. It was in concert. It was obviously edited, but the first thing that got me into Yes was And You and I because uh, Close to the Edge was the current album when they were doing that. It was around about just after Close to the Edge had come out, and I guess they these form part of the recordings for uh, Yes songs. Mm-hmm. So having got into them there, what even shocked me even more was my mum actually came in while I was watching. She said, oh, that's yes. And I'm how do you know that's yes? <laughs> I was really impressed. And she said, oh, I've heard I've, uh, one of her friends, her son, had the first yes album. She said, oh, they're really, really good. She said, I, the first album's very good. I'll get it for you. So I said, okay. And it was, for me, it was a totally different experience because, of course, the first yes album contained cover versions. But the one that really stood out, coming from where I come from, um, near Liverpool was their cover of the Beatles song Every Little Thing and I thought yeah. my goodness talk about turning something inside out on its head and throwing it out the window going and getting it back and then twisting it round again <laughs> that was like something I thought what is this but it was such an incredible um, if you like reworking of what would ordinarily be a very very sort of well known and, and well liked and well loved song and it didn't take anything away from it it just added so much to it so I think the, the very first Yes album, and I think Peter Banks had a huge part in this, um, the sound of the band was, was really kind of defined from that very first album. And what a lot of people don't know, and I subsequently found out over the years, was that they actually kind of recorded about half of the tracks before they went into the studios with Paul Clay to produce the final album 
with a, a very, very well-known uh, record producer called John Anthony. And he recorded some tracks and he actually went in at the behest of the band when they were recording the final album because they said, look, the guy can't get a decent organ sound. And he said, I went in and went, you do this, this, this and this. And he said, but th that mix I had was fine. He goes, it was rubbish. You don't know what you're listening to. And he said, then I walked out. That was it. He said, the rest <laughs> of the band were just laughing. He said, I kind of came in like a whirlwind and just sort of went out. I mean, I've got a great interview with John in one of the dialogue books about that, those sessions. He was a bit annoyed that he didn't get to do that because his first big production was the first Van de Graaff Generator album, The Aerosol Grey Machine. But he said he would have loved to have produced Yes, but it never happened. And there was talk about him possibly producing the second album, but then Tony Carlton came in. And unfortunately, with that particular album, that was the seeds of Peter Banks's dismissal probably grew out of those sessions uh, because he didn't get on very well with the um, producer. Plus, he didn't like the fact that uh, the guy who co-wrote uh, Time and a Word and Sweet Dreams with John Anderson, who'd previously been in The Warriors, played acoustic guitar. And he goes, I'm the guitarist, and yes, I need to play that. So he was kind of making it well-known. Then he fell out over who they should have as manager. And, of course, when Brian Lane came in, it wasn't very much after that that Peter was given his marching orders. Although he was always a bit of a grumpy man, Peter, and I loved him dearly. He was a very, very good friend. Um, but he he did love what the band were. He didn't necessarily like everybody in the band. He fell in and out of love with various members, I think. And I think to the end, he was very good friends with Chris Squire. But um, I still think, as a musician, it doesn't take anything away from him. He was an absolutely amazing musician. I don't know, again, another journalist and broadcaster here, Danny Baker, called him the architect of progressive rock. And I think that's a very, very apt description for Peter Banks. And I think... His virtuosity, his creativity, and his absolutely amazing guitar playing comes through this album. And even Steve Howe actually said, without Peter Banks, who was an excellent guitarist, he said, I wouldn't have been able to come into Yes and do what I did. So he said, you know, Peter was an amazing guitarist, and I really respected what he did. So all that rubbish about Peter and Steve Howe, they hate each other, absolute rubbish. So, you know, P Steve rated Peter very, very highly. When I'm walking beside her, people tell me I'm lucky. Yes, I know I'm a lucky guy. I remember the first time I was lonely without her. Can't stop thinking about her now. Every little thing she does. For me, yeah. And you know the thing she does. She does for me. Very cool. Yeah. I mean, I fully expected that album to be on your list. There's no surprise there. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's a, it's a great one at that. So perfect choice. Um, I, you know, I, I, I suppose mine is not really in any order either. Although I sort of feel like I did put it in an order. Uh, it's weighted a little bit, but but you're right. I mean, you could go any which way with all of these. So I'm just going to go with uh, my number five. I sort of steer myself progwise a little bit on the, you know, I, I don't like the word modern era, whatever you want to call it. Some of these newer bands. So I might, I have a few more of those. I figured you guys are going to cover yes and some of these things. So um, I'm going to go with a band that uh, is uh, uh, 
celebrating a 10 year anniversary of their debut album was was just a few days ago actually um and it's uh it's become one of my favorite bands and i love these these guys uh so i'm gonna go with haken and their debut album aquarius and i didn't discover them from the debut album i went back afterwards after i heard some things but um it's it's a great album there's a a little bit of the death metal growl vocals on this. I think they were experimenting with that at the time when they first started. So there's bits of that in there, which I could do without. Um, but otherwise, the playing on it, the songwriting is tremendous. And and for them out of the gate to write the 17-minute the epic uh, Celestial Elixir, which, which is just insane, uh, still blows my mind. So if, if for anything else, I would give them this nod just for that song. Um but I think they've outshot the quality of this album tenfold over the last few records. I think they've become one of the best bands in the world. And um, uh, so, and I've gotten to know those guys and they're just great. And um, if you like sort of the, the metal, the dream theater meets Opeth, you know, but they, and they throw in some of the yes stuff. They, you know, it's heavy, but they are very, uh, very seventies prog influenced in some of the stuff they do. Mm. So if you haven't heard the debut, um, I, check out celestial elixir at to start and just ask yourself how does a band that that is on their debut writing this and it's incredible Be but they are, of course, uh, very. They go down very, very well on Truth to the Edge. They've been on the last few. Well, that's with, with the amazing good thing. Yeah, every year yeah. they keep coming back. And um, yeah, well, there is yeah. a reason for that. <laughs> yeah. they, I mean, to put it as they as we put it over, they're bloody great. But um, and and I think you're right because I think what they bring to the the party is so many diverse influences, but they've they've got their own stamp. Mm-hmm. And that is the mark of a great band. I mean, there's nothing wrong. It's like Marillion. I mean, they used to get, they had to suffer this rubbish. That, oh, poor man's Genesis. They weren't. They, I mean, and of course they've developed over the years like any great band will. Right. And I think longevity is proof of that. And Hagen are exactly the same. They, they bring all sorts of influences to bear, but they've got their own stamp. And that is what makes a great band. Yeah, agreed. Uh, yeah, and it's become a really good live live act for sure. They're just tremendous. Uh, all right, off to a good start. Jeff, what's your number four? My number four. Um, okay, um, I'm going to go with... Um, see, I've got such a long list here. Um, I really am struggling to decide. But I think I have to mention um, Steve Hackett, um, Voyage of the Acolyte. Sure. You mentioned earlier Snap. on. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. You mentioned earlier on, Roy, whenever we were um, talking about, or we were talking before, and you said, you know, no, 
do we count solo albums? And I go, well, I think I think um, Acolyte. I suppose I, w- I would have been whenever I, my first list actually. By the time I took out the supergroups and the solo albums, there, there weren't that many left. Um, but but again, why is that in my mind? Well, I've been very excited recently by the. Um, what will hopefully go ahead the genesis shows later in the year particularly excited that one of the early dates is in belfast because bands don't often come here and that's great um and i've been reading up um again i've been going back through the albums um and again reading about um steve hackett and i suppose post um the lamb tour he had a certain amount of frustration and in fact whenever we we did the the top five with him recently you know we we asked him the question about would he ever consider doing you know the lamb in one of the solo tours like he did uh selling by the pound and he sort of said well i don't think so because there's not actually that many big guitar moments in it which was and i guess that sort of reflected that frustration because he had all of this stuff that wasn't getting an inroad into the band and um, he took that break and actually, I mean, Mike Rutherford and Phil Collins are both on the album. So, I mean, it, it was solo under his direction, but he also had them involved. Um, and I think a lot of the stuff on that album even predates his involvement with Genesis. I, I remember reading that um, Shadow of the Hierophant, at least part of it, was something that he presented as far back as Foxtrot and that the band... Um, didn't didn't really take under their notice but i i just think it's a it's a really um mostly instrumental album but just something that shows the true virtuosity and to me it was always something that showed that you know what this guy is capable of it, it's going to be very difficult for him to stay in a sort of democratic um band type environment and sure enough he's built an incredible um solo career off the back of that and again the, a lot of the tracks from there um you know still form the basis of uh, the classics that he plays in the shows today You're right. I mean, as a debut record, it's it's one of his best records to date. All these years later, and there's some tracks on there that are just mind blowing. Can I ask you, Jeff, what your favorite track is? I'll tell you what mine is. When you you show me yours, and I'll show you. <laughs> um, I think I think it was, it has to be between either the first or the last one, Ace of Wands, or or Shadow of the Hierophant. Um, I think I, I just love the second half of Shadow of the Hierophant. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with that. But my favorite is Ace of Wands because I can remember buying the album. Yeah, me too. And yeah. thinking, okay, so they can do it without Gabriel. This is this is what Genesis are going to sound like. I don't have a problem with that. And there's a little <laughs> bit of that on Trick, 
But it really, I mean, he started the way he meant to carry on with Ace of Wands. I thought, I thought whoa. Yeah. You know, it was such a, a real big kick in the pants, I think, really. And I think it also made the other guys in Genesis sit and take notice, which, of course, was to come to a bit of a head following Wind and Wuthering. But, um, yeah, and it's, it's a bit, it's kind of like the George Harrison syndrome, isn't it? Well, I've got all mm. these songs, what am I going <laughs> to do with them, you know? And, and he really did have a fantastic... Uh, reception with that particular album and and i think the only thing that steve regrets about it was that he wasn't able to tour it at the time which i think he would have liked to have done yeah right uh yeah awesome good choice i i knew you know i knew someone was going to cover that uh all right john what's your what's your four well again i you know another one which is probably obvious for me you know because i mean i've known jeff downs for 40 odd years now He's, he's a very good friend of mine and when I heard this album, I, A, I was surprised, and B, I'm very, very happily surprised. I was talking about the debut Asia album. Yeah. And I put it on, and I, the first time I put it on, turned it over, played it, I thought, my God, there's no bad tracks on this album. Well, this is really something else, because it, it was quite obviously prog because of who was involved, and, and some of the songs were um, very prog-like, but the, it was more concise then, you know, we didn't have any 20-odd-minute tracks on here. Um, I think, I don't get any of the tracks no, really no, busted all... the six-minute. They're right. all pretty concise. But they're all very, very good songs. And what interested me about the cover as well, because it didn't look like, at the time, your archetypal sort of Roger Dean sleeve. I looked up, well, Roger Dean did this. Because I was very surprised, because it, I, it was not something I expected from Roger Dean either. So I think, obviously, it heralded a new era, Um they were called, again, all sorts of things, you know, corporate rock. They were put together by Geffen, whatever. They, there was a, an element of that because at one point, well, the people don't, many people don't realize that Geffen Records wanted Trevor Rabin in the band. Right. And he, yep. in, in, in the book Dialogue, Trevor told me, he said, well, I had a, I had a, a deal for a solo album. And it was uh, a deal whereby they would develop me. It was a development deal. But they said, actually, we want you to join this band. So he said, I flew over to London and to, to rehearse with them. The only big problem was Steve Howe was the guitarist and nobody told him I was coming. <laughs> so he said, we spent four days rehearsing. We were rehearsing things like Heat at the Moment and also Owner of a Lonely Heart and Changes and stuff like that. And again, people don't realize the connection there. Uh, Trevor Rabin could well have been in Asia, but he decided it wasn't for him. So he told Geffen and they dropped him, which was great for Trevor in a roundabout way, no pun intended, because right. he ended up being put together with Alan uh, and Chris. Right. So that, you know, in two, in some ways we kind of got two bands. If he, if Trevor maybe had stayed with Asia, we might not have had the rebirth of yes with nine and one, two, five. So that's good. But the, what I'd like about um, the Asia album is, uh, and I think a lot of it has to do with the, with the production as well. I think Mike Stone produced it, a great producer, sadly no longer with us. But it still sounds great now. It's not. It doesn't sound like an '80s album because there's a lot of '80s albums which have some great songs on. But as you know, the production and uh, methods in those days, everything went digital, and most bands had this dreadful Yamaha DX7 keyboard, poppy <laughs> sort of horrible, horrible brass sound on, and uh, electronic drums. And this album didn't. And I think that's the thing that makes it uh, sort of 
stand out and still stand the test of time now because you don't think it's an 80s album because of the the relevant uh, production techniques or the hardware involved in uh, like recording or producing it so i think that's why favorite songs well probably the whole album uh soul survivor probably would come out on top for me uh heat of the moment still sounds great and we still see it in film soundtracks occasionally as well mm. but for me soul survivor is probably you know, or maybe Wildest Dreams, but Soul Survivor definitely stands the test of time. And I love hearing that song, even now, like occasionally, you know, sort of an isolated moment away from the album. But the album is still one I play regularly. I'm going to back you up on that one and and say that that's my number four as well. And, uh, you know, being sort of a a kid growing up in the eighties when that, when that came out, um, and not knowing the history of all the guys in there and and all that, all their bands before that Asia was to me before I discovered King Crimson or (laughs) the yes stuff or anything. So I love, and I loved that album. I love the albums that they did after that. Asia is a, a very important band to me. Um, and even and now when I listen to them, having sort of lived through discovering the prog stuff, it's sort of a weird way of looking at it. Cause I still, yes, it is concise and accessible and pop radio friendly and all that, but you know what? The playing is still good. And for me, a good rock song that appeals to me, if it can be four to six minutes, but it's interesting with a few extra parts that a standard pop song doesn't have, or the playing is good, or the soloing is great, you know, extra elements that these prog guys brought to it, that's just as good as anything, and I and I love that a lot. Um, I mean, songs like Wildest Dreams and stuff like that, that's not, that's not straightforward rock that any old band could have done. I mean, you had to be good players to pull off that stuff. Mm. Um, and... Uh, 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 here comes yeah. the feeling. Only time will tell. All those things are so well crafted and well written. You need to, you needed to know your shit to write that. And anybody that knows music would understand that. I think uh, when listening to those records, it's funny actually because obviously having toured with Asia and worked with them a lot, as I have with Yes, I can remember and I can remember the exact moment. I was in Manchester and they were sound checking and they sound checked with Wildest Dreams and it was like whoa. Because it just like kind of comes at you from nowhere, and I'm thinking, God, that's you know, that's an amazing song. And at that point, this is like 25 years after the event, and I'm thinking, yeah, you know what? There's something special about this band. But that, just the way they did it at the sound check, I went, whoa. <laughs> I mean, it was, it really is. And every song really knocks it out the park. I think on that album, I really yeah, do. And, and you know what? I have to give a special shout out to Steve Howe on that record because he plays differently on that record than yeah. than some of the yes stuff more power chord things and the soloing is is a bit more straightforward and i think it's some of his best stuff on there it's it's underappreciated i think his performance on that album and and mm. he and he pretty much limited himself to to one guitar or at least one electric guitar which if you if you follow steve howe will know he he rarely limited himself to one you know one guitar per song and never yeah. mind one, one, one guitar per album i i love my favorite um, and we talked about this when we did our asia top five with um 
with Bumblefoot um, was was time again, and just even mm. just the sheer number of riffs and twists on you know the main kind of thing that's in there. It, it's and, and yet it's a to to ordinary ears it's a pretty straight ahead rock track, but there's so much. Um, clever stuff um, that that goes on in there. It's 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 my, my favorite in that album. Well, Steve told me. I was going to say Steve told me that he, following the Yes situation, he felt he had something to prove. So with Asia and GTR, he said, when I went back to Yes, I thought, well, you know, I've proved myself. I can do something outside of Yes. So it's, it's I'm coming back to this fresh now. And I think he really did. I think Jeff's right. I mean, it, it's such a a different, well, not different, because you know it's Steve Howe, but it's certainly another aspect of Steve's playing with Asia. And I think that, um, that yeah, people could say, well, yes, of course, he's, he's the guitarist, and yes, as if that is like some kind of detriment. It's not. I mean, the man has played many different styles within the Yes catalogue. But I think it was, he, he moved it on a little bit and a little bit to the right of where Yes were with Asia. And again, with, with GTR. So, I mean, the man is a hugely talented musician and he does have his own sound. And, and as I said, there are many colours to Steve's palette, to put it in a, a rather arty way. But I still think he's one of the most amazing guitarists uh, in rock music, never mind progressive rock music. Yeah. No doubt. Uh, John, did you ever see uh, the, the last tour, that Royal Affair, where Bumblefoot was singing for Asia? Did you happen to catch that at all? No, because that never came to the UK, and oh, it, was, it happened just it happened after the cruise. But you know, Ron, I mean, there's another amazing musician and yeah. vocalist as well. And a lot of people thought, oh, you know, this isn't going to work. And I thought, you know what? I think it is. I mean, having seen Ron, of course, going back to Guns and Roses, and of course, with lots of bands and lots of projects since then, I'm thinking, no, it's in good hands. And you know, even Jeff said, if they do decide to do anything more with Asia, and they're not saying they will or they won't, but if they do, they, you know, Ron's the guy to, to, to fill the shoes. I mean, let's be honest, filling John Wetton's shoes, it's a thankless task. I mean, the man was a, a musical genius, in my opinion, not to, I mean, apart from the, the fact that he, personally he was a lovely guy, but musically, and he's another guy, he, he went through so many different styles and, and was able to make it like, well, I've been playing this style all my life. And if you think of all the bands John's been in over the years, and yeah. then as a songwriter as well, it's like, my goodness. I mean, he was peerless. He really was. Yeah. There is actually, you were talking earlier on about Trevor Rabin. If you, if anyone's interested in that, if you YouTube it, there there are actually some recordings, uh, pretty, pretty lo-fi um, of... Uh, I think it's Trevor Trevor Raven singing "Only Time Will Tell." Actually, with oh, with, the, with uh, a really yeah. rough. Uh, I think it's called can, "Starry Eyes." I think it's called. Yeah, I think I can tell you where they came from. <laughs> they are from the rehearsals because they yeah. were all they were all recorded, and and because Geffen wanted um, Trevor in the band, and I I think you know Trevor Raven, an amazingly gifted musician as well, but I I do feel that. Asia would not have been a right move for him. That's just my personal yeah, point yeah. of view. And I think he was much, much better uh, hooking up with Chris and Alan and, and doing the next Yes album, or the cinema album as it started off. But um, there's no doubt about it that um, it would have been an interesting move for him. And I have heard those recordings, but they, they are rehearsal room recordings. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, they're interesting. They're interesting. <laughs> Small world between those good, those bands. It's amazing how it all worked out. Really is. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right, Jeff, you're number three. 
I'm I'm slightly renowned for my for my curveballs, and um, <laughs> I feel it. I feel it's <laughs> this is where Roy gets worried, but don't worry, Roy. Uh, but but I, when I did my first list, I sort of looked at it and went, "Gosh, lots of these are '70s albums," and um, so I, I was trying to think of things that were a bit later than that. And um, yeah, pr- prepare yourself, Roy. My um, my number three choice is the debut album by Blackfield. Wow, um, which is okay. Stephen Stephen Wilson and mm. Aviv Geffen. That is a shocker. Um, now that you see again, there's there's lots you know about me, but there's lots that you don't know. Blackfield <laughs> is is music that I really really enjoyed. Aviv Geffen. I, I, for those of you who don't know about it, Stephen Wilson. I'm sure people who are listening to this program know um, Stephen Wilson. Aviv Geffen is an Israeli. Um, I think. I'm right in saying a uh, mm. singer um, yes. who had a quite successful career there, um, singing a lot of songs in Hebrew. And um, he teamed up and they, they made an album together with some collaborations with some um, English language versions of some of the songs that Aviv Geffen had previously recorded and with some Stephen Wilson songs as well. So if you listen to a track like Blackfield on it, on the, on the album, the the title track, Stephen Wilson sings it. It you know it can sound. I think it's got probably either Gavin Harrison or um, Chris Maitland. I can't remember, but anyway, a, a connected drummer playing it, and it sounds quite like what people know as the Stephen Wilson or Porcupine Tree kind of solo track. But it's actually the the tracks that Aviv Geffen sings that I think are really really interesting because you have something culturally in there that's different in terms of how melodies are come across um the standout track on it um if you've no idea what i'm talking about or want to listen to it there's a, there's a track called cloudy now um which is a which is uh, i think an absolutely brilliant track and they produced a series of really really great albums and i think the debut one is a standout one and it's sort of one of those albums that um if people who kind of um, know that I'm into Prague because I do stuff like this, but they don't really know what it's about, and they think that it's all kind of Dungeons and Dragons and um, you know, <laughs> Lord of the Rings and yeah. uh, you know, forty minute songs. And I remember one of my friends, I gave him this album, and like the the album, the Blackfield debut album, I think is less than forty minutes long, and it's kind of ten songs. And he was like, "Gosh, I had no idea that's the kind of stuff that you listen to." He was absolutely mm. blown away by it. I think there's Hello. There's the title track. I think it's really good. The contrast between the styles and the vocals and everything that comes together. It's a really, really good album. And it's unfortunately the the band has progressed. I mean, the band has still made four or five albums, you know. But they've been that that was like, I think maybe uh, a two thousand four or something. It came out. Mm. Um, but they've made some really, really brilliant albums um, over the course of the years. In the shade, whistleblower. Singing fades in the black field. She wants to stay and talk all day.
I like I, I do like Blackfield. Um, I don't love Aviv Geffen's voice when he sings in English okay. uh, as much. So I struggle with some of those, even though some of the songs are, are, are decent. Um, I like the Stephen Wilson songs. It's funny because I felt for me, you know what? A lot of these artists that I would, that I like a lot, for example, Porcupine Tree or uh, band, even Genesis, Big Big Train, other bands that I might've considered for this. I don't love their debuts. I love the stuff after and the Blackfield is the same. I like the second one a lot. Oh, that's, that might be my favorite. The newest one that they did, which is now maybe a couple years old, I think is really great. Um, the first one was sort of okay for me. I like some of the songs you mentioned, the, the Blackfield and Hello. He has some good songs on there. Um, but I felt at the time, because I was so into Porcupine Tree, discovering Stephen Wilson around that time that you're talking about, I just started listening to everything he was doing a few years before uh, that I felt like, okay, this is stuff that he could have done with Porcupine Tree, except he's just ending songs about three minutes sooner. That's that's all he's doing here. <laughs> Instead of them being seven minutes, they're four, and it's the same thing. So Jeff, can uh, I can I ask? Sorry, sorry, Roy. Um, Jeff, can I ask you that? What's why do you think that the Blackfield album stood out? My, my feeling on that is that it was so. In my opinion, it was actually a lot different from Porcupine Tree, and of course, we all know that Stephen Wilson, the prog god, he, he remixes albums, he produces his own albums, and, and he works with other people. But this was kind of still on the, the kind of upward trajectory for him, wasn't it? So maybe yeah. it, it kind of slipped under the radar. And I think it does bear reinvestigation, certainly. But um, as you know, that maybe the, 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 some of the later albums, people got him on board with that. But I think the first one I really liked when it came out because I was sent it. And I thought, well, yeah. this is not quite what I expected from the guy from Porcupine Tree. I think um, I think that's I know I think you've hit the nail on the head there because we we, we you know n- now we look back and I suppose you know we, Stephen Wilson has covered such a range of styles within Porcupine Tree within his solo stuff even the stuff the, the you know the the single he's put out relatively recently I think at the time you know at the time when this came out I was listening to Porcupine Tree because I'd been listening to them from uh when would signify have been probably 19 probably mid 1990s mm. you know so i'd been listening to porcupine tree for maybe eight or nine years and this was something that was really different and it was the shorter songs and it yeah it mixed it up a bit and i suppose some of them had that kind of yeah you know it hit the cliche of pop sensibility but it sort of showed that actually he wasn't just all about you know the dark riffy kind of stuff well, he's been your, he's been trying stuff. forever to show that he's something more than just prog guy and this was definitely something in that yeah. direction i think that's that's what he was trying to do um but i can't help it it's i, I even with the the fifth album uh when i listened to it and i could pick out the six songs that i like the most and this, they're always the ones written by Stephen wilson when it comes to blackfield <laughs> no and 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 not to dismiss Aviv Geffen, who's a tremendous artist, and and but it's just uh, just how it sort of works out for me um, with those albums. Well, uh, yeah, but the thing is, the thing is though, that's actually a good thing because I I don't feel that because um, some people think oh well if you like that person you gotta like everything they've done and I don't there's certain things that by certain bands that I'm going well you know I don't like that 
sure. I don't know what it is. It's like, and I tell you what, and I think I've probably mentioned this to you before. I love Rush, and I, I remember seeing them the very first time they came to tour the UK. But I still can't get my head around Presto. <laughs> the albums are <laughs> the side I love. Presto, I'm going, wow. And I even discussed this with the producer, Rupert Hine, and I'm going, I don't know what it is about that album. And I just thought, oh, I'm not sure I get this. But I think with I think Stephen Wilson um, is a great artist, and and I think there's there's probably lots of stuff that that Stephen's done that people go mm, I'm not too keen on that. I mean personally, I love pretty much most of what he's done. I, I I'm of the mind that she's moved on should have been a hit single. Yeah. But there you go. You know? yeah. And and if on classic rock radio, we've got a few Stephen Wilson uh, tracks in the mix. For instance, we've got things like. Um, Hand Cannot Erase, and we've got Lazarus as well. And we play the single version and the, and the album version of that. So, you know, I think it's um, I think it's good that, you know, you, you appreciate what he does as an artist, but you don't always like everything that he does. And I think I think that's a good a good sign. And you know and what? He doesn't he doesn't care about that. That to his yeah. credit, he does what he wants to do. I mean, take the new the newest single that he just released, per, uh, mm-hmm. Personal Shopper. Which yeah. I mean is is uh, as divisive a track as he's released, really, and so no one knows yeah. what to expect from the new record, which we'll probably be hearing soon. Another track, or, or you know, maybe we'll get the album early to review or something. We'll see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, uh, but it's all good though. Yeah, I like that choice though, Jeff. I mean, throwing that's a good curveball. That's a good one. Um, okay, you. John, what's your number three? Um, again, you would think that this guy. Would- but had done a solo album years before, but he didn't. It is David Gilmore, as he is now known. Oh, Everyone used him years well, that's ago. That's a good Dave one I didn't Gilmore. think of. Yeah. Nice. But the very first Dave Gilmore album, as it was there, it was, it was, I think that was the first time he, he, he credited himself as David Gilmore. And it's the self titled debut. Came out in 78. And I think it was the first of the solo albums. There's certainly, I remember around about the same time Rick Wright brought out Wet Dream and, and Nick Mason did Fictitious Sports. Roger kind of waited, I think. I mean, although he'd done an album called The Body with Ron Geeson, but he kind of waited until the 80s before he kind of um, sort of popped his cherry as a solo artist, as they say, with the pros and cons. But I really like this album. And the minute I put it on, I knew exactly who it was that was playing. So I'm thinking, my goodness, that sounds like Pink Floyd. Um, But I like the whole album. And I think it's it's. Not Pink Floyd light, as many people have said. I think it's a really seriously good album. And I think it's underrated as well, probably because it was not what people expected from the guitarist of Pink Floyd. Although I don't know what you, you could expect from somebody from Pink Floyd. I think it's actually the album he, he should have made. I think it's a great record. But definitely from the very first track, um, you go, yeah, yeah, I know he's been in Pink Floyd. <laughs> Because um, it could have been on one of the early. I don't mean to say anything. I, I think the Trout in Trout, which is I think it's called My Alice. I think that could have been on pre um, metal. Personally, I think it's kind of 70, 71, 72 um, era Pink Floyd. But it's you know again, there's some really good rock songs there, uh, including a song that was uh, written by a guy called uh, Ken Baker, who's I think he was the guitarist in um, a band called Unicorns called There's No Way Out of Here. Again, great, great, um, great, great album, great songs. And uh, yeah, that's that's still a favorite of mine. It's definitely, and I think for me, has the edge over his second album. There's some good songs on About Face, but for me, it's the first one that I really kind of go to. If I'm going to play a David Gilmore album, it'll be the first one. I love all the others since then, of course, as well. So 
it slips through your hands like grains of sand You watch it go There's no time to be lost You'll pay the cost, so get it right There's no way out of here When you come in, you're in for good to revisit this one a little bit because I don't remember it as much as uh, About Face I remember listening to a lot um, mm. and I remember the live concert on TV that he did for that one uh, yeah, you, you've, that, prob- yeah. you've probably seen that too Jeff that, mm. that was yeah, yeah, that yeah. Um, yeah. but yeah that's a good choice I, I, but it's I, actually, it, there was, a, it was um, a promotional um, film which again I've got which I'm sure a, a lot of fans have but I've had it for years which is about four or five songs from that album performed yeah. live at the Hammersmith Odeon. And uh, they he would have been able to, I mean, obviously he did go out and do some of those songs when he did the About Face tour. Um, but I, I think he certainly could have gone out and, and toured with those had he not been pulled back into Pink Floyd because Pink Floyd were actually broke, <laughs> which yeah. is how the wall came along. But um, yeah, I think it would have been an interesting thing. And I, I think David Gilmore missed touring and playing live more than possibly some of the others did in the band yeah it's a it's a great choice i wouldn't uh, again I, it it didn't cross my mind but i think it's a, a brilliant choice and there's uh, again it's, it's a really really good album um i love um isn't it the uh, roy harper uh the short and sweet the one mm-hmm. that he, he, yeah, he wrote he wrote with him, uh, which I think was originally on a Roy Harper album, maybe as well. It was on after it was on yeah. the Unknown Soldier, which came okay. after this album. Right, okay. So yeah, but I mean, uh, it's again, there's there's always been a very very close relationship with the guys in uh, Floyd with Roy Harper, who's another artist I love. You know, but, uh, so, yeah, it's I, a good song. That I remembered the uh, it was and the last track is that kind of I can't breathe anymore, which I thought yeah. was quite quite a, a sort of. You wonder was the tongue planted firmly in the cheek uh, when he was doing that. Of course, it was. Uh, you were talking about what well, I think I'm right in saying. If if I know my, if my Pink Floyd history is right, that that while Rick and Dave were doing this, Roger was writing the wall, and well, I think he wrote the wall and most of the pros and cons. He and did yeah. presented them to the band. Yeah, and um, and and the problem, I mean, or the issue was Gilmore and Wright weren't as prolific writers as Roger, but they no. had completely, um, th- they'd used up all their bits on their two yeah. albums and, and that sort of left them in an awkward position. But it's funny because we were talking about, um, we were, we were doing a, another podcast recently um, where we were all singing the praises of comfortably numb. And that was, mm. that came from a leftover bit from those sessions that, that he didn't yeah. do, but it, was, but it was pretty much all Gilmore. It seemed to but it have was, left yeah. at the time. It's, you know? it's funny though, the, the bits of the wall that I like, and and I, I saw the show and, I, and I've got film of it as well. So they say, well, there's no film. There isn't, they're lying. There is, I've got it. <laughs> but um, and it's at Earl's Court. It was at the gig I was at. There's also film of them performing on the Animals Tour at Earl's Court as well in 77, so I know that too. So it's all right saying, oh, no, there's nothing there. We know there is. So, well, I do anyway, because I've seen it. But um, 
the thing about the wall is it, again a hugely successful album but when david gilmore said subsequently when we were given some of the demos some of them were unlistenable and we had to, we had a big hand in turning yeah. roger's ideas which were great he said I, I, pros and cons we just couldn't get we didn't get that at all but the wall we thought okay we can work with this but then um, the bits on the wall that I do like are, are very, very much feature David Gilmore. Um, it's not that I don't like Roger. Um, I, I think he's an amazing artist and a great songwriter. But some of the stuff on there and subsequently um, the final cut is not to my liking. I think that should have been a Roger Waters solo album personally. But um, And I'm probably going to get a lot of people unfriending me for this. I really like momentary lapse and division bell so yep, yep there you yep. go you know you're in but good I know right nothing wrong with those you're <laughs> not a pink floyd fan if you like those albums i go well i think i am but um yeah i i think um i really do love the gilmore solo album the first one as i say i love all the others you know on an island and uh, rattle that lock and and about face they're great records but for me, this is like this is what i expected from a, a guitarist in pink floyd <laughs> Oh, right on, right on. Okay, good. good. Um, okay, so I'm gonna go um, a little bit, uh, a little bit weird, maybe for you guys in the in the yes, Pink Floyd Genesis arena <laughs> that we deal with, and um, I, I wanted to try to include something else uh, a little bit di- different. Uh, I refer to this band a lot, and my goal is to always try and get people more and more into this band because I just feel like they're so incredible and every time i listen to these collection of records i'm floored by it and so i'm going to go with the debut album by the deer hunter uh Mm. and it's called the lake south the river north uh it came out in 06 and the thing that's um interesting about this album this band the whole thing is the guy that's behind this casey crescenzo basically wrote this album as knowing that it was going to be this five or six part at the time, uh, continuing storyline and established in the first one, which is the shortest one, um, with a few sort of short instrumental bits and stuff, but, uh, established a lot of different musical themes throughout it that when you start to listen to the second and the third and the fourth one, he ended up doing five and concluded it. Uh, all the themes repeat throughout and there's, and it's just so brilliant how he does it. I just can't get past that part. It's like taking concept albums and just putting it on steroids and, uh, and the, and the gorgeous melodies and it's all orchestrated and just no two songs are the same. There's different genres thrown in and styles and, and the story is super complicated. I mean, I don't even bother trying to figure it out. Um, but, uh, I just love it. And, and it's, it's such a brilliant debut record and just so risk taking the way he does it. The first two tracks on it are two minute weird instrumentals. That's his introduction to people. Like no one knew who it was. And I just think that was so bizarre, but then you start to get into some of the songs. And if you want to check this out, I mean, 1878 is just ridiculous. And the pimp and the priest is just, it's just so brilliant that it's like, it's one of the best debut albums I think I've ever heard. So uh, I, I highly recommend this if, if you guys haven't heard it.
I haven't I, heard it, to be honest with you. But, I, you know, that's the great thing about Prague, isn't it? I mean, and I really think, and, and speaking from someone who works in radio, when you get promo people saying, hey, this is, it's just like Led Zeppelin, it's just like this, I'm going, hang on, we've already got Led Zeppelin. And really, <laughs> you know, it's a done deal. There's not, you know, nobody's going to reinvent <laughs> the wheel here. Um, and much as I love the Black Crows, if you like the Stones and the Faces, you're obviously going to like the Black Crows. And I love them as a band, but... They're not really doing anything. What they do is absolutely amazing. But, um, you know, and I'm happy about that. But I think the real progressive element and the real moving it forward is coming from the prog field. And I think there's so many great new prog bands out there. So, And I think it's impossible to actually hear everything. So if you pick on something and you can push people towards that, I think that's really good. I'd never heard of that particular album. I, I got into them through the um, the Colors EPs. I, I really, really enjoyed enjoyed those that it was a, was a series of nine three track eps was it that they yeah they yeah, all named different each, colors each, yeah each, each one after with the different moods and different colors but that that um that that, that uh concept they haven't finished it yet sure they haven't there's still one to well come, he but... is he has said that there's going to be a part six but it's not going to be an album and oh. that's still been a couple of years now and no one knows what exactly that is um, so we'll see. I hope there's more of this music to come. Um, the, the, the act series, that's what, what it's known as is, yeah. is, is my favorite stuff of it. And that's really the more progressive stuff. I mean, there's some argument to be made that this band is as much alternative as they are prog and they sort of walk that line. But I think whenever you're doing a five albums series concept album with long songs that are seven, eight minutes, that's prog to me, um, yeah. as much as anything. Um, all right, Jeff, number two. Okay, um, and I, I, in some of my choices, I've, I've, I suppose I've, I've tried to maybe avoid things that potentially I think you guys might pick. <laughs> um, but I, I, there was an album I really wanted to have on this list because I think I do consider it to be a debut album. But I'm, I'm, I'll mention it at the end. Um, but my, my number four pick is um, in the court of the Crimson King. And uh, by King Crimson, and I think um, not only is it a debut album to me um, in the history, it is, you know, to me it's one of the first proper progressive rock albums. And I'm I'm not sure entirely about my timeline um, to do with the date of say the first Yes album coming out. A lot of people will say, was it Sgt. Pepper? Was it? moody blues days of future past i think that in the court of the crimson king was something that blended the rock the jazz the classical the symphonic and in a way that was just incredible unlike nothing else and that kind of set um a template for something that a lot of bands you know and even we're talking about the more modern bands we're talking about the heavier bands the Higgins, you know the, uh, even to this day those bands are drawn from a lot of the stuff that you know the 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 middle section of 21st century schizoid man um you know how, how many songs um are influenced by in the court of the crimson king or epitaph and the mellotron and that kind of stuff and you know again steve hackett will talk about king crimson being a, an influence um you know genesis will talk about getting the mellotron because king crimson were using it or the moody blues were using it um i just think it's a, a brilliant debut album what i would really love to pick but i'm sure um 
people might argue about it is actually the 1981 King Crimson album called Discipline, which a bit like we talked about yes earlier on, did start right. out as a separate band called Discipline with Adrian Ballou, with Tony Levin, with Bill Bruford and Robert Fripp. And it's a it's an incredible debut producing another completely different type of music that really doesn't have very much reference back in my opinion to um to what king crimson did before but again pushed things in a totally different direction in the 1980s again at a time where um complicated rhythms and interplays um and guitars and weird guitar noises just weren't what bands were doing um and again set another template um for you know for lots of future stuff that came so I, i'm trying i'm going for a bit of a twofer here uh for <laughs> in, in the but, court of the crimson crimson king. king is the in the court is your your pick though yeah. officially yeah i mean listen that's the obvious one that sort of has to be at least between the three of us on this list i mean it is mm-hmm. the defining debut album arguably of this genre right um yeah and 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 even that said, it's a spectacular record still to this day. It is amazing. So that's as good a pick as any. The purple piper plays his tune. The choir softly sing. Three lullabies in an ancient tongue for the court of the crimson. Well, I think I think I think the fact that that I chosen that too says a lot. I mean, I, I again, not it, nobody had heard anything like this before. I mean, a brief, like a history doesn't like anyone needs it, but they they started off as Giles, Giles and Fripp, which was a kind of left field pop group, and then they thought, well, we didn't have any success with that. Let's try something else, and they brought in Judy Dibble, who just kind of finished, I think, with the um, Purple Convention. Oh, yeah. And they did some recordings, and that wasn't satisfactory. And uh, she left, and then they sort of moved it on a bit again. I mean, they started rehearsing at the beginning of 1969, and the album didn't come out until October 69. And in in between, then they made their live debut, supporting the Rolling Stones on the 5th of July at Hyde Park. Well, yeah. What an amazing place to make your live debut in front <laughs> of possibly half a million people. Um, but again, no one had heard any of that material, and yet it really picked the audience up and shook it by the scruff of the neck. And there's footage of them performing uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man. And it's funny, actually, because they, you see the funniest things in commercials these days. I mean, King Crimson, I think, uh, 21st Century Schizoid Man is, uh, was used in a, a commercial for perfume in the run-up to Christmas. Goodness knows what your wife would think if you gave her something like that just because you'd listen to King Crimson. But um, <laughs> it, was a, it was an advert on the TV for tyres. Uh, gosh, it must be about 25 years ago. And they reissued the single, but on CD, sure. you had five different versions, I think, of <laughs> 21st Century Schizoid Man by various lineups of the band. And each bloody version was totally different, which says a lot about not only the band, but the song as well. Okay, so my number two, um, Jeff, I'm, this might be on your list. We'll see. 
But I'm going to go with the debut album from Transatlantic. Uh, Simpty, or S-M-P-T-E, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Uh, from 2000, the... Uh, I mean, I think for the modern last 25 years of Prague, this is one of the most important albums ever because from this... If you weren't aware of progressive rock, if you were only a Dream Theater fan, or if you were only a Marillion fan, or whatever, it it opened up a million doors to a million other bands, and yeah. very few albums can say they accomplished that. And and so I know for a lot of people, like I was a, a Spock Beard fan before this, but for many people, that's how they discovered Spock Beard and Neil Moore. So that's how this is how I discovered the Flower Kings was through Transatlantic. So, um, not to mention, it's an amazing debut. Right off the bat, they come out with a 30-minute epic, which became their trademark. And uh, and the ballad, We All Need Some Light, which is a song that was going to be on the Spock's Beard album, but ended up making it to this instead, uh, yep. is just one of Neil's strongest ballad pieces that he ever wrote. Um, and uh, My New World is another amazing track. They do a Proco Harm cover, which not some fans like that cover some fans don't you know i'm on the fence on the cover i could take it or leave it but the four songs with already make this album a classic and Mm. uh uh just i mean they're one of the best bands still running hopefully that there is a fifth album uh being recorded by them we'll see when that whenever that comes out um but uh just i can't think of a more important album really for for discovering new bands than this than this one it's a it's a an amazing four people that they put together on this thing. Hearing the call with your back to the wall in a wordless conundrum. Half of your life between a rose and a knife in a time. You should find innocence and is though Roy if you think about it you say you got into the Flower Kings by them and maybe uh, Spock's beard but th- isn't that the way a lot of people kind of latch onto this particularly when you've got artists involved who have a legacy behind them with other bands or as solo artists and I think that that probably happened with Asia as well because yeah, by no, 1982 for, for sure. nobody nobody really knew if you got you heard Heat of the Moment on the radio and you were like 15 you probably wouldn't be aware of Oh no uh, that was like for me I, I yeah no I ELP. agree I, I had said that Asia I I knew of Asia yeah. before I knew who who King Crimson was you know at that, yeah. at that age in my life I'm I'm talking for the modern era that that's sort of where this I, was. Well I think that's a good thing and I, yeah. I think as well as um as well as Transatlantic I think Flying Colors do a similar thing I mean in that sense you mm-hmm. there's it's again it's different from what all the if you like the collective uh, it sounds totally different from the the vir- virtual components in that make up that band I think. Well, it's yeah. amazing. And it was the first Portnoy, Neil Morse, co- you know, connection. That's where they mm. hooked up. And since then have gone on to make 
by now I've lost track 20 some odd albums, which is incredible. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, just a fantastic record. Um, all right, Jeff, your number one. Well, my number one, um, I was, I was fluctuating, um, before, between what you've just chosen, um, and Spock's beard, the light. And I actually had put a, t- uh, a tick in pen beside the light. So that was my, my, my choice. And, um, that's maybe not surprising for many people who 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 know me and know what I like, but um, I, I suppose we were we were talking, uh, and there's there's quite a number of bands, um, I suppose who's you know if we look technically at Genesis debut album, um, the the from Genesis to Revelation, it's not really reflective of what they came to be. Um, whilst it's a great album, the first Jethro Tull album isn't quite what they came to be it's more of a a blues band so there there are a number of of debut albums uh and we talked about big big train um as well you know you wouldn't their their debut albums wouldn't necessarily be the go-to albums um i think spock's beard the light arrived fully formed um and it's it's just um that's not to say that and the band and their music and what they have done since then has has moved and shifted and changed because it has but again in 1995 um an album you know with a 15 minute 23 minute songs um full of invention crazy lyrics um an american tinge and sense of humor which actually is something that i think spock's have always managed to retain and maintain that we don't you know there's not too many british bands who who i suppose jethro tull maybe had their uh, in anderson had his tongue in his cheek a lot of the time um but but i think that kind of slightly quirky american um prog sense of humor um that neil morse has um features in there and and it's you know it's four songs each of them is a really really strong song um and you know, amongst again, when we did did the shows, picking our our Spock's beard favorites, a lot of the a lot of the time we were coming back to that debut album. And oh my word, you know how many albums have sprung from the success of what was basically Neil Morse's kind of um, it was nearly his sort of farewell letter to the music world because he tried for years to make it as a singer songwriter and he just decided to record this thing that was uh the the music that kind of got him into music inspired by the music that got him into music in the very beginning and he he wasn't trying to be billy joel or phil collins anymore he just tried to do this this music based on what inspired him and it turned out that that kind of was the adrenaline shot into um his career and the thing that um, kind of got him on track, which led ultimately to Transatlantic, which led to a whole lot of um, other things. So yeah, um, the 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 light is is for me a, a brilliant debut. Look, there's a light headed for the sun. Stand and you might. Turn to everyone The lady, the last, melted the glass Looking straight into the light 
Agreed. Uh, what could be said? I mean, yeah, it's 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 like the transatlantic, but it's just a few years earlier. And, uh, uh, you know, for us, Neil Morse fans, unabashed Neil Morse fans and uh, Spock's Beard fans. And, and since then, uh, all the stuff with Portnoy, that it all starts with that one. And again, it's just the, the writing on there. The stuff he came up with is just insane. Uh, it's amazing, though, isn't it? When you think, I mean, and that's that's like. 25 years ago. <laughs> I mean, crazy. Like, where I know, did the it's... time go? I mean, you know, and, and of course, there's so much great music since then. But, and isn't it funny how this was probably going to be, oh, well, this is like, you know what, I'm going to have one more go and, and I don't care. This is just getting this out of my system. And it just clicks. And, yeah. and from there, so much more follows. So really, if you think about how grateful we should be for something like that kind of coming out and going, wow. And it, you were thinking of throwing it all in. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right? Totally. That's amazing. Um, so, John, you had one more. Uh, well, no, that, I had five. I had, was I it going to yes. be uh, Hackett? Hackett uh, was it was, yeah, it was uh, Yes, um, then Hackett, and, and then Asia, and then David Gilmore, and, and then, of course, my number one was in the Court of the Crimson King. And, again, I got the, um, the reissue for the Crimson King, um mm. from from the uh the reissue sort of series because i've got all the box sets because i get sent them uh, and the guy who who puts them together he does a great job and when i got this i, I just spent three days listening to it again and again and mm. the funny thing is there's an instrumental version of, uh, on all these albums and they do instrumental version they did an instrumental version of the yes uh, panegyric uh, do yeah. instrumental versions on the deluxe editions and, and it's amazing to hear songs that you know literally inside out and then you hear them instrumentally you go my goodness there's a lot yeah. more going on here than i first thought <laughs> but it, it really is i think you would pr i mean it features in the rolling stones 100 uh, best albums of all time and rightly so but i think in terms of progressive rock, it, it's probably got to be number one. If certainly not number one, certainly the top three. I, and I would find it difficult to find another two records that would supersede that in any way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and again, so many bands uh, have been influenced by that particular album. And yeah. uh, it is, it's when you think about it, they, they made their live debut um, in such a big way and so people kind of had an idea of what they were going to get when the album came out because originally the Moody Blues were interested in signing them to Threshold uh, Records which was their label okay. but in the end that didn't happen so they went with Poly well it was Island Records at the time which was probably the right label for them I think Island Records at that point were doing a lot of great work in the music industry and bringing out great albums. So I think that it came out on the right album, although I think the Moody's might have missed out on that. I don't think it would have made as big a splash with the respect to the Moody Blues, um, because, of course, they, you know, it was their own label, but uh, they were probably more interested in their own. It's, it's like anything that's on the label. I mean, do you remember any of the other artists? I do remember a few, but... Um, Generally mm. speaking, I mean, Trapeze was probably the only one that came out of Threshold yeah. at all. And it's the mm. same with the Rolling Stones. I don't remember any other artists. Or maybe right. Peter Tosh, you know. Mm -hmm. But there were, they did have other artists. But I think uh, King Crimson made the right decision in going with Island Records with Court of the Crimson King. That seems that way. Yeah. Uh, let me just uh, mention my number one, which, Jeff, you uh, had it, which is Spock's Peered Delight. So oh, well, so. Uh, <laughs> we, we shared that one and... Uh, you know, no ob obvious uh, extra things to say there. Um, 
Anyway, uh, this was fun. We covered, uh, I think, most of the uh, required classics here with a few curveballs. My my long list, um, to th- just to throw in my honorable mentions, um, and we, we, we've actually alluded to some of these, um, Peter Gabriel's debut album. Uh, right. F- fantastic Yeah, I almost album. had that one as well. Um, um, the And Rick Wakeman's... Um, proper debut album six wise of henry the eighth is a is a great one um i also had the first uk album we talked about john wetton earlier on that's a mm-hmm. that's a phenomenal album of and and really i mean i think the second uk album is virtually uh, virtually a different band um so i think that's that's kind of um deserves its place in there the other one and i know that this would this would leave roy scratching his head um, but but not you john the other one i thought about was tubular bells oh yeah by, by mike oldfield um again uh um no, no one probably um m- mostly for the um the the music that appeared in the in the exorcist but um a yeah. great one can you remember the video though that they they used on the whistle test for that I, well, I'm I I I have seen it. I'm not quite as old enough to be able to remember right, it from okay. the time. <laughs> <laughs> I can. It's, it's these, I don't know where they got it from. They used to use these silent films because they couldn't always get the artists in, so they had this silent footage, which they put the music to. These guys skiing down a hill yeah. uh, or a mountain, and uh, but I that's where I got it from. And then I think The Exorcist came a little bit after that, but um, yeah, I, you know, I get that totally. And it's one of those albums that. People probably wouldn't think was would be prog because so many people had it. You'd see so many people back in the seventies with that album under their arm or in their collection at home. You know, it's popular. Yeah, it is very very popular. Yeah, yeah. No, I would appreciate that one. I mean, I know that I know that the significance of that of that record is is you know, mm. pretty pretty important. I mean, I've got a few other sort of notables, I suppose. Uh, Bill Bruford feels feels good to me, which yeah. was a, a great solo album. And again, um, that you. Probably think this is a bit odd, but um, two Genesis solo albums: uh, Tony Banks' "Curious Feeling" and Mike Rutherford's "Small Creeps to Stay." Um, I love yeah. Tony Banks's albums anyway. I, th- I think he's very underrated as a solo artist, mm-hmm. and I wish more people would buy the albums. But the first one, "A Curious Feeling," I thought it was absolutely superb. So yeah, and I, I, again, there are so many other. Uh, there's a great band called Wally who had a kind of yes connection. Um, they were managed by Brian Lane. Their first album was superb. So again, you know, you could make lists, and I do occasionally do that, and <laughs> I kind of try and stop at the <laughs> if I because I write them down by, like freehand. So I try and stop by the time I get to the bottom of a, an eighty-four <laughs> page, because otherwise it just gets silly, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I, funny again, my in my in my uh, Genesis listening, I, I've actually listened to both those albums you referred to. Um, uh, the small creeps day and um curious feeling and they're they're both really really excellent albums what came after um acting very strange and uh was it the fugitive yeah uh, pr- probably less so <laughs> well they were both set, well the, the, the acting very strange I, I feel was not a great i've got to be honest sorry mike rutherford if you're listening um it wasn't a great album it was okay parts of it were okay i think 
Mike and the Mechanics, that I really hit, I think he hit the mark and obviously hit the gold seam there as well with those albums. But um, yeah. Fugitive, wasn't that? it was a, a film uh, soundtrack, wasn't it, as well? I mean, you listen, to it, and it may not be uh, a prog, but let's not forget the Phil Collins debut, which is a, another masterpiece. I mean, you take those five guys and each one of them, their first album, uh, their first solo album. I mean, it's just incredible. Well, if you look at the, the first Anthony Phillips album as well, which is absolutely superb, Geese and the Ghost. If you like yeah. Trespass, yeah. you're not going to dislike Geese and the Ghost. So. Yeah. Yeah. And, and Anthony, again, an undervalued member. I think they go, yeah, found against the guitarist in Genesis and all that. But if you look across his catalogue, there's yeah. some amazing musical moments there, I have to say. Some great records. Yeah, indeed. Uh, all right, guys. Well, listen, John, I uh, hope everything, uh, you know, gets you through this uh, virus and uh, everything yeah. is all right. Likewise uh, for you guys. Yeah, Jeff, you as well. Yeah. And hopefully there'll Thank be a you. cruise for us to, uh, you know, reconvene at some point. Um well, you do yeah. realize I, I would actually be somewhere in the Caribbean now because I was obviously hosting the on the Blue Cruise, which followed right after Cruise to the Edge. So mm-hmm. I'm missing some sunshine, too. Yeah. <laughs> and deep yeah, blue sea. The weather right now down here is fantastic, let me tell you. Uh, well, I've had another week. So, I mean, you know, you can imagine how much I'm missing that. <laughs> I know. Well, uh, all right, guys, uh, everybody out there, uh, be safe and uh, we'll see you again very soon. See you later. Bye. Great. Bye.